to think deeply and at the same time relax a little. Uh, think deeply and at the same time relax a little. This is part two of Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through eleven. Let's read the whole text together and then we'll dive right in. Uh, to where we picked up from last week. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will, come, will not come unless the rebellion comes first And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they that all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, as we talked last week, he he talked about the man of lawlessness. And we want to be clear, there's the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. And then there's a rebellion and a man of lawlessness. And in this passage, he starts by discussing the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. These seem to be specific occasions and specific things. The rebellion sounds an awful lot like Revelation 19. Sounds an awful lot like the the earth turns against God and then the coming of Jesus Christ happens. It sounds an awful lot like that. The man of lawlessness sounds an awful lot like what the Antichrist, the Antichrist is described as. Now remember, in 1 John we are told... The Antichrist is coming into the world. Indeed, many Antichrists have come into the world. And when we talk about Antichrist, we're not simply talking about somebody who's opposed to Jesus. We're talking about somebody who's a substitute for him. Anti in the Greek language implies more than just opposition. It implies substitution as well. So when we're talking about the lawless one, the one who sets himself up as Antichrist, the one who does that. We are talking about somebody who is claiming to be God and claiming to be able to deliver salvation in place of Jesus. So we talked about that extensively last week. You can look that up on the podcast. This week, we want to pick up in the middle of that message where we were answering the question in the face of a world slipping into greater rebellion. And in the face of a lawless one and the anxieties 
about all the end times and all those things. And in the face of YouTube videos and TikTok, false information and all these all these constant streams and, and things that get fed into media, that gets fed into our brain by people who are claiming prophecy in the face of all of those things. How are we to respond according to this text? How are we to respond according to this text in the face of a world that is slipping into constant floods of misinformation and false understandings of the scripture, how do we respond? Well, I think we're given several answers here in this passage, in this text. First, I think we see in verse 5. So the first one we see in verse 5, in response to these things, Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So he says, starting off the bat, you've been taught these things before. Remember what you were taught. Remember the things you were taught. So in the face of when we are uh, confronted with false teaching, which is what's going on in Thessalonica, they've got people who are coming in who are proclaiming that Jesus has already come. That Jesus has already come, it's done, you missed it. Like That's kind of what they're proclaiming to them. And they're claiming that... Uh, based on things that are happening in the world around them. They're telling them things. Some of them are even sending letters in Paul's name. False letters. It's beautiful. Again, we said last week, one of the beautiful sovereign acts of God is that he has preserved the scripture as it is, and we don't have those false letters. Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to wade through the fake stuff in order to get to the the meat and the truth of scripture because what we have is preserved by God, has been preserved by God through history, often miraculously. Often miraculously. Um, So remember first what you've been taught. So let's consider that phrase just for a minute and remember that Paul taught heavy truths first. Things that we think of as really heavy things are often at the beginning of letters. Do you ever notice? To the elect at such and such, you were predestined before the foundations of the earth. All those words that give us uh, discomfort as people, the, the theological terminology that people are like, whoa, 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 that's too heavy. We need, we need to get the light stuff first. Paul seemed to start with that stuff. Indeed, he was with the Thessalonians for about three weeks and he covered eschatology. He covered the end times. He talked about these things that he's addressing, these things that most people would be like, you need to get it under your belt first that Jesus Christ loves you before you understand these deep things. Paul was like, these are not deep things. That's first to remember. Let's remember first that these are not incredibly heavy. In 2 Thessalonians, verse, uh, look at chapter 2, verse 15, and look at what he says here. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul taught taught the traditions, the traditions of the church, the practices of the church, and the, the thoughts of the church. He taught those, as well as what we know from 1 Thessalonians, he taught what he called Scripture. We thank you, brothers, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as the word of God, the Scripture. He ties their teaching to scripture saying you received from us the word of God 
This is not simply a sermon preached by some random guy. This is the scripture itself. So just a side note. There's an academic practice in the world today to dispel all absolute truth. And to say that truth is only uh, that which is based on consensus for the betterment of society. So you say something's good, I say something's good, therefore we say it's good and it is good in society. Sounds an awful lot like the book of Judges, doesn't it? You say it's good, I say it's good, therefore we agree it's good, and everything goes south. Right? Everything goes bad. There's an academic tendency to want to take Paul's letters and go, these letters are not authoritative because they're written by Paul and they were written by him in his time period. Listen, when Paul appeals to things in his letters, I want you to note 90% of the time, he's appealing to Genesis chapters 1 through 3. The creation narrative. He's appealing to a sovereign God over all the universe. He is not appealing ever to cultural consensus. He appeals to an absolute truth at all times. And not just an absolute truth, but an absolute truth that outdates, predates anything else in history. The Ugaritic text does not predate creation. The Babylonian Talmud does not predate creation. Paul is appealing to absolute truth in all of his writings. So if an academic tells you that truth is relative to the consensus of the majority, tell them no. There is absolute truth. There is not consensus and relative truth. That's not truth at all. That's my opinion. And here's what what I want to warn you about. Academics, of which I'm part of, just so you're aware, I am an academic. Most pastors have absurd amount of education. We are academics by nature. Academics tend to do this thing where if they feel like your argument is strong, they throw out you they throw at you academic word salad. Just a bunch of really big words that mean nothing. Well see the academic the general scholarly consensus of these truths is antiquated because of the the past relativistic vision of consensus from that cultural time period. No, stop that. Stop it. Stop it. And I know that academics do it because I'm guilty of it. We throw out word salad in order to end an argument or in order to win an argument. Don't do it. Don't let other people do it to you. Hold them to the truth that this is absolutely true. Paul was speaking scripture. He was teaching things that were authoritative because he was speaking and teaching from the word of God. And God was using him in this divinely assigned period to develop the church and to produce the word of God as we have it. This scripture for your edification and growth that you might know him. Second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, Paul explains that you remember these things and maintain the traditions even as they have been delivered to you. So the first answer to anxiety is to over these false prophecies is to remember what you've been taught. Remember the true things you've been taught in Scripture and by godly people. Remember what the Word says. Consider your leaders in Hebrews. Consider your leaders. Consider their way of life and imitate them. 
Think about their way of life and imitate them. Paul and other leaders model these things for us. Teaching is not merely a matter of dispensing information. Let me say that again. Teaching is not merely a matter of dispensing information or standing up and talking or teaching or even even writing things out. That's not all that teaching is. Teaching is also modeling these things. Paul has an extreme emphasis on looking at leaders' lives and following those lives, following those styles of life. That is teaching. That is also teaching. We must not reduce the idea of teaching to simply dispensing information it must be more than that it must be what we call the hebraic model of education which is to walk on the roadside with the person to walk out life when you lay down when you sit when you stand when you eat when you drink you are modeling these behaviors you are teaching them to people in hebrews 13 7 is what we talked about remember your leaders and consider their way of life and imitate them and then in first corinthians 11 verse 1 Imitate me as I imitate Christ. A good leader is one who not only speaks well and teaches well, but when you examine his life or her life, they are solidly following Jesus. They are solidly following Jesus. And you can get to know them. So Christian, get to know wise people. If you want to answer anxieties and struggle in this world, find wise, godly men and women and get to know them. I will tell you that don't often look exciting to get to know. They usually are old or older or they are considered boring by the world's standards because they want to do things that are fun and the world wants you to do things that are sensational. There's a difference. So we want to get to know godly people who have godly character and get close to them. That's one of the ways that we remember what we've been taught. We remember what we've been taught by getting close to godly people who have taught us that same thing. That's how we remember. Second thing is to trust in the sovereign work of God. Look at verse 6. There's a lot, by the way, in this passage. There's a lot about the sovereignty of God that we're not going to cover this week. This is a four-part sermon on 11 verses. This is part two. So we're going to cover some of that stuff that says at the end where it says God sent a delusion. Sends a delusion. We're going to cover that just... Beware, I'm not going to cover that thoroughly today. So if you were like, yes, we're going to talk about that heavy topic, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait. So here we go, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 6. It says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will now will do so until he is out of the way. So we know that the lawless one is being restrained at the moment. The revelation of the lawless one is being restrained at the moment, held back. We know this. Did you notice Paul? He doesn't say, don't you know, or didn't you know? No, they know this because he's already taught it. They're supposed to hold to the things that he was taught. So he's already taught it. So God is restraining the lawless one. God is restraining evil. This is a consistent pattern we see in Scripture. And so the question is, how does God restrain lawlessness? How does God restrain lawlessness? And I just want you to think a moment about how God restrains lawlessness. The first one and foremost, God restrains lawlessness by the law. By law. He gives the sword to governing authorities. Uh, 
to restrain lawlessness, to hold back wickedness. Indeed, in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, it says, Where there is no vision, the people perish, but happy is the one who keeps the law. Vision there is equated with the law, the Old Testament law, the, the first five books. That's, that's what vision is equated with. Happy is the one who keeps the law or who embraces the, the word of God. So where there is no vision, where there is no word of God, the people perish or better cast off strengths or become lawlessness, become lawless. So first and foremost, the, the lawless ones are restrained and lawlessness and rebellion is restrained by God giving law, both governmental authorities like we read in Romans where it says the the governor is given the power of the sword and like we read in first Peter that the government is given the authority by God to rule over the people we read these things and and we see that God is the one who's working over kingdoms and rulers he's the one in charge second also God is giving the actual word of God the law restrains lawlessness when someone is in rebellion, the word of God is the best way to pull them back from it. The word of the Lord is the best way to pull them back from it. You don't need any apologetic arguments or rational things, though those things are helpful to know, and though those things are helpful to study. The truth of the matter is the word of God should overflow from our mouths and overflow from our hearts, out of our mouths, into the hearts of other people and call them to repentance. By the word of God that conviction comes, and that lives are changed. It's by the word of God that conviction comes and lives are changed. So that's one way God restrains evil. The second way God restrains evil is by keeping his people or guarding his people. In John 17, verse 15, Jesus says to God in his high priestly prayer, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them, that you keep them and guard them while they're here. Christians are people who live above the circumstances of the world. Remember what the psalmist says. Behold, you lift me out of the miry pit and place me on the rock. It does not say you lift me out of the miry pit and then dispel all the storms and I'm free to run and roam. It says you lift me from the miry pit and place me above the pit on the rock. I'm above the trials of this world because God keeps me safe. The picture of Moses in the Old Testament when he is, uh, he is asking the Lord to show himself to him and the Lord says, I can't show myself to you because if I do, you'll die. And so he says, okay. And then he says, but I'm going to show you my back. I'm going to show you what's, what remains after I pass by. But I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. He puts him inside the rock as the the power and presence of God passes and you can imagine the earth just being destroyed, whatever it was, just things going bonkers outside. And then he opens the rock and he can see what remains from God's presence. He can see what remains from God's presence. Two things about that story that should bother us. One, God is so utterly terrifying that if Moses had seen him, he would have died. And yet, we get to see Jesus. We get to see him and don't die. That should bother us because I don't know about you, but I don't measure up to Moses. I don't measure up to Moses. 
Second thing that should that should trouble us a little bit about that text is I hope that I'm in the rock. Like I, I hope that I am constantly living in the rock and paying attention to what's going on and being alert in this world and seeing the movement of God through the lens of Jesus Christ. I hope that I'm always there. So, those a side note, but He keeps us, He protects us through keeping His people by closing them in the rock of Jesus Christ. The metaphor of the Old Testament or the picture of the Old Testament is the rock is a type for Jesus. And He is covering us. And then in Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 1 verse 13 and Colossians chapter 3, we know that the way He keeps us is by His indwelling Holy Spirit within us. He actually lives inside us. You get a new nature and the Holy Spirit to guide that new nature in this life and to interact. And He actually lives inside you. He makes His home, His residence inside you, guiding you by His still small voice, which we cannot explain adequately to non-believers, by the way. When you talk to a non-believer, this part of our faith sounds crazy. Own it. It's just true. Own your crazy. This is, this is wild. That God of the universe takes up residence inside of his people and decides he is going to speak to them through his scripture and the empowering interpretive power of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. That is wild. John chapter, what is it, First John, that says, you have no need for a teacher for the, the spirit is in you, right? You, you can... You can read the word and understand it, right? There's a engagement. So he keeps us by the law. He keeps us by his people. He's the sovereign work of God through his people or through, yeah, through his people, through us. And he keeps us by keeping us with each other in community together. James chapter five, verse 20, love one another as I have loved you and John chapter 13. And then in Ephesians chapter three, verse 18 through 19, Paul prays that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints all together. You would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is a communal religion. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. You were born into a family. When you were reborn, you were reborn into a family. Guess what? You don't get to choose your family. You never get to choose your family. That person who became a believer is now your brother or sister in Christ. Get over your hangups. You get family, and that's awesome. And sometimes you get family, and that's, oh, family. You have to understand that you were born into a family together. He keeps his people by keeping us with each other and using each other. Paul prays that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So how does God, how do we trust in God's sovereign work? We trust in God's sovereign work by one, the word of God, the law being put before us. Understanding that he is working in the law, both governing authorities and the law of God, the word of God moving in our hearts. Second, we we see that we trust in the sovereign work of God by he keeps his people with the Holy Spirit. 
So we see that the Holy Spirit indwells his people and he keeps us and guards us. Uh, as First Peter says, an inheritance in heaven awaited for you, guarded by God, kept by God for you. Um, and then finally, he keeps us by putting us in community together. We are kept together by the sovereign work of God. So when we're facing anxiety, we have to remember what we've been taught and to embrace the work of the sovereign God in our personal lives. Embrace the work of the sovereign God in our personal life. Third thing that we can see in this text is down in verse uh, 10. We'll go ahead and read verses 8 through 10 here. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So the third thing we can see here is that we can answer the anxieties of false prophets and false information by the love of the truth. By the love of the truth. Those who do not love the truth are those who reject God and refuse Him. Those who do not love the truth are those who reject God and refuse Him. It stands to reason then that those who love the truth are those who believe and trust in Jesus. Those who love the truth are those who believe and trust in Jesus. So we stand against false teaching and we order our lives against false teaching by loving truth and ordering our lives affections according to that truth. The deeper your love for truth, the greater your ability to resist deception. The deeper your love for truth, the greater your ability will be to resist deception. So if you have a, a hunger and a thirst and a love for truth, you will be further down the line at resisting deception. Christians love and live by truth. Those who do not believe are described as those who do not love the truth and so are not saved. But those who love the truth live by the truth. The ones who are perishing do not have a love for truth in verse 12. I mean, in verse 10. And then in verse, in verse 12, if you'll notice in verse 12, it says, not only do they do not have a love for truth, but they also take pleasure in unrighteousness. Those two things are analogous in this text. No love for truth and taking pleasure in unrighteousness are, analog are analogous. They're, they're the same phrase differently. People who do not love the truth thereby take pleasure in unrighteousness. Or you could say people who take pleasure in unrighteousness, do not love the truth. So this is, this is a descriptor of non-believers. Believers, on the other hand, love the truth and delight in righteousness. Their delight is in the law of the Lord on His word that meditate day and night. Belief is not merely an intellectual assent either. We want to be careful that belief is not merely an intellectual assent, like an, an agreement to something that is true. Rather, belief is knowing the truth, clinging to that truth, and loving that truth so much so that it changes the way you live. It changes your affections. We are rearranging our affections to be more in line with truth because truth is our delight and our pleasure. 
So we've got our three, we've got three things there on how to address anxiety in the world. How do we address anxiety in the world? First, we remember what we've been taught. Second, we hold fast to the sovereign work of God in our individual lives and in our community. Third, we love the truth and we order our life around it. And then four, we trust that God is sovereignly involved in things that we do not understand. We trust that God is sovereignly involved in the things that we do not understand. I don't understand what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. I don't. I've tried to study it and think about it, and I get some of it. Oh, it's twisted. And it's dark. And it's got a weird history. I don't understand the things that are going on in Myanmar with the constant civil war that's been raging for years. I don't understand. I know it's twisted and evil, and I know that we have brothers and sisters in prison for no reason other than the fact that they're Christian and they decided to offer medical aid to people who were dying. I don't understand what's going on in Sudan right now. I don't understand these things. But there is one thing I do understand, and that's in this passage. Look at it. Look at it. In verse 7, he restrains evil. In verse 7, he restrains evil. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is the mystery of lawlessness. This is not the lawlessness or the rebellion, but this is the mystery of rebellion, saying that this has already been at work all of time. Man is rebelling against God now and has been since Genesis chapter 3. He's been rebelling for a long, long time. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7 gives us this incredibly difficult Hebrew passage to understand. I'm going to read it and I'm going to use the word that's in Hebrew just so that you get a little bothered by it. If you're looking at an ESV, it'll translate calamity. Um, But I'll read it. It says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create evil. I am the Lord. Who does all these things? The Hebrew word there is the word for evil. Now it's rightly translated calamity because the context of which he's talking about is rain falling on everyone and floods and things that seem evil. We're translating that correctly by translating calamity. But I want you to feel the weight that Isaiah was getting at. The Lord is involved in the things that we think are awful. Now, there's other places where he says, I do not delight in evil. I do not delight in calamity. I do not delight in the death of the wicked. I do not delight in these things. It's not like God is somehow sadistically taking pleasure in awful things happening. That's not what the, what the author of Isaiah is getting at. That's not what Isaiah is talking about. What he's talking about is even when we look at these things we can't understand, the Lord is both restraining evil that we don't grasp, and he is actively involved in things. He is not far away from suffering. He is not far away from wars and famines and trials. Indeed, he is walking through them. And in the Bible is often described as weeping over them while inflicting them. There's a pain that God feels. There's a struggle and difficulty that God has. He is real. He is not 
some robotic check checklist keeping algorithm. He is he is an intimate, personal God who does not delight in the death of the wicked, rejoices over one sinner saved, goes to find lost sheep and brings them back to the fold who lays his life down for other people, for pe- for ants, who takes the punishment of our sin upon himself that you might have life, who is patient with us while we shake our fists at God, who is so patient to have let us persist on this earth for so long. He is beautiful and wonderful and restraining evil. He is the Lord who does all these things. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 and following all the way through the end of that chapter. What does it continuously say about God's response to man's sin? He gave them over. 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 God does not have to help us sin. We do that all on our own. We're good at it. God does not have to have to force us into those positions. He is not guilty or culpable of sin. Rather, he is sovereignly restraining evil. And what we see in Romans is as sin and rebellion persists, he gives it over. He removes his restraining hand from it and it moves forward. So first, God is restraining things. Second, God will kill the lawless one. Did you see that in verse eight? The lawless one rises up, says, I am God. I'm going to take my seat in the temple. I am the Lord. I am the savior. Jesus shows up in verse eight. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I want you just for a second to grasp the lack of epic war that happens here. This is not a cool martial arts fight. Hollywood would have a very difficult time making this exciting. I mean, we'll think it's exciting. But I want you to imagine an army amassed, standing before the Lord, the lawless one, ready to go. He's got his whole army there, and then Jesus shows up and it's over. It's not a fight. It's not a fight. This is not a fight. This is, you're done. And he's gone. How does it happen? By the breath of his mouth and when he walks in the room. When Jesus shows up, the lawless one is out. Son of destruction is the right name for him because he will be destroyed in a moment. Jesus walks in and it's done. By his appearance, it's over. So we see he restrains. He also destroys all of the lawless one. Then we have this crazy verse, verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. We're going to talk about the theological implications of the therefore and all that stuff the next two weeks. Just before anybody's like, you didn't cover that. Don't worry. We'll get there. There's a lot. There's a lot here. So he sends them a strong delusion. Look, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So the unbelievers are amassed in rebellion against God, and God sends them a strong delusion. Unbelievers now seems to be what Paul is referring to. Those who do not love the truth and those who take pleasure in unrighteousness, they have a delusion where they go after these false teachings. 
You see this now, don't you? You see this now, don't you? That people who delight in unrighteousness seek validation in that unrighteousness and therefore pursue other things. They pursue falsehood that approves of their life. They try to find uh, testaments and testimonies that would excuse what they want to do because they know at their heart and in their core that what they want to do is wrong. So they throw off all sense of absolute truth. I think this is probably where our day and age is. They throw all sense of absolute truth away and they go, I can decide for myself everything that is good. I can determine good and evil on my own. Just a note that always goes bad. It always goes wrong. Every time in Scripture when it says he saw good in his own eyes, it goes bad. That's the Hebrew translation. He saw it as good or he said it was good or said it was right. He sees good. He sees Tove. He sees it as good. Samson does it. The judges do it. The people do it. They see what is good and they determine what is good on their own. What they are doing is a reverse of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Where God sees what is good, calls it good, and he makes it by his mouth, he sees it by his eyes, and he says it's good, and therefore it is good. It is good because God saw, spoke, and said it's good. That's what makes something good or evil. What's Eve do in Genesis chapter 3? She sees that the fruit is a delight to the eyes and would be good for food to the mouth, and so she proclaims by her mouth, This is good and hands it to her husband who is standing right there. Hands it to her husband and he eats it too. And this is sin in illustration. We want to see and say what is good on our own. Rejecting what God has said is good. Reject what God has said is good and said, no, Lord, you did it wrong. I am this way. And what we're watching in our culture is the Lord giving us over to it. Over and over and over. He's just removing his restraining hand and allowing this to happen. So we are seeing people run rampant who have rejected the word of God, who've rejected the truth of the law of God, who've rejected the vision of God, and therefore have cast off all restraints and now are crying and weeping because they don't know who they are. And they're destroying themselves and those around them. God sends a delusion. We see this, don't we? We see this all the time. He sends a delusion on the people who do not believe. And we can see what that delusion is. One, that the Lord has already come. That was in verse 2, right? That was in verse 2. That's what he's warning the Thessalonians about. They are being told that the Lord has come. He's coming. You know, whatever it is, like he's come, it's all metaphorical or he's come. It's not it's not going to be a physical return like he's there's not going to be. He's not going to set everything right. This is all spiritual. That was probably highly likely what they were being taught because the Gnostics were prominent at that point And they separated the flesh from the spirit. We can talk about that at lunch. But the idea is that they were being told that the Lord had already come, that salvation had already come in their minds and in their hearts or, or whatever, that it had already happened. And they uh, needed to just trust that and that. They needed to give up all this Christian stuff, these Christian mores and things, because, you know, it's already over. Um, That was one thing. The second delusion that we see sent in this text is in verse four. 
that there's something other than Jesus that saves. The Antichrist or the lawless one will rise and say that he is God and he's the one, he's the Antichrist, he's the one that saves in place of Jesus. There's going to be people who arise in that way. There's going to be things that arise in that way. There's going to be ideologies and philosophies that arise in that way to say that they are salvation. Oh, you know, if you just understood these four steps of new age philosophy, you would understand salvation. Or if you just did these five things, you would have inner peace or all the self-help books in the world. If you just read these self-help books, you'd be perfectly fine and saved. Oh, if you just got self-actualized. Ooh, ooh, I know the big one now is if you just found out who you are inside by how you feel. If you just took how you feel and that's who you are inside, just... Uh, heads up, the word of God says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else and sick. So don't trust it. It's sick. That's not, we trust the word of God. Our minds bring our hearts in line and our hearts then change our actions and our hands follow suit with our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So fill your heart with the things of the mind, renewing your mind in the word of God. Now, our culture is filled with this delusion that other things saved in Jesus. If I just have the right, if I just do the right, if I just get the right, if I just have the right thing, then I will be satisfied. It's filled with that. The truth is only one thing saves, it's Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him and following Him is the only way you'll ever figure out who you really are. Because He made you. He made you. He knows who you are. He made you to be who you are. And He, get this, He actually likes you. He likes who he made you to be. If he didn't like you, he wouldn't have made you to be that way. He likes you. And he wants you to know who you are. But you can only know who you are if you get to know him. It's one of the weird things about Christianity. The closer you get to Jesus, the more like him you become, the more unique and individual you become. It's one of the strangest truths of Christianity. We strive to become more like him. And in striving to become more like him, he reveals more and more the beauty of who we are. And we are changed and altered. And like a beautiful piece of artwork, we become the, the picture, the artist intended. And it is beautiful and gorgeous. And that is the truth of Christianity. It is not found in any other religion or ideology. Third in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 10 through 12 the third delusion we see in this text is that somehow unrighteousness is more pleasurable and delightful than truth. This is the third delusion. Somehow unrighteousness is more delightful and pleasurable than truth. We see this even in what I was talking about earlier with consensus relativity. That we, that idea that we find the truth in the consensus of the majority, which is a flat out lie and wrong. But that's a delusion that's sent on our society that you you are going to have more pleasure in unrighteousness than you will in righteousness. Or you're going to have more pleasure in following the things of the world than you will following the things of Jesus. Yet we, we know that supreme joy and supreme life is found in the creator and author of that life. And therefore, following him... Is supreme joy. There is much more joy to be had in Christ than there could ever be in this world. It doesn't hold a candle to him. We trust in God because he works even in ways that we do not know or understand. 
So we remember what we've been taught when we face the anxieties and falsehoods of the world and false prophets. We remember what we've been taught. We cling to godly people. We remember what we've been taught. We trust in God's work individually in us and in the community of faith. We learn from each other. We grow with each other. We feast on the word together. We feast on the word individually. We love the truth. We find our love and delight in the truth. And finally, we trust that God is sovereignly active, even though we don't understand all of that sovereign activity. Even though we don't understand all of that sovereign activity, we trust that he is sovereign and active. Oh, Lord, we believe wholeheartedly with all that we are that Jesus Christ is our rescue and our salvation, that he died on the cross for us and rose again, that we would have life. Lord, we love you. Help 